Welcome to the Future of Learning and Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Keir. Each week, I highlight the people and companies shaping the future of education, training, and work. This week's guest is Austin Allred, co-founder and CEO of Lambda School. Lambda is one of the world's leading software engineering boot camps. In this conversation, we cover boot camps, income share agreements, universities, early childhood education, and more. Hope you enjoy, and don't forget to share and review. If you could just give a quick overview of your story leading up to Lambda, that'd be awesome. Awesome. So I uh, grew up in kind of small town Utah. Um, uh, was basically a self-taught internet addict for a really long time. And eventually uh, started Lambda School. <laughs> for those who are unfamiliar, what is Lambda School? Yeah, so at Lambda School, we train people to be software engineers and data scientists in live online classes. Um, and we don't charge anything until you get a job that pays more than $50,000 a year. Um, so it's kind of like a, a school with a tuition guarantee, I suppose. And so obviously the tuition piece is one of the key differentiators between Lambda and say a four-year CS degree. What are some of the other key differences? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tuition model is kind of the, the starting point that leads to a lot of um, other differences. So, for example, you know, we, we tweak our curriculum almost every day um, just to keep it in line with what the industry needs and, and make little iterations to it. Um, and then on the, the hiring side, you know, we've got a team that tries as well as we can to get you prepared for jobs. Uh, to get you interviews as much as we can. Um, we actually have a program that we call Fellows where we, we will pay uh, a salary for a student for the first month they're working at a new place to try to, uh, to get an employer to try them out. Um, and that's been really successful. And the employer only pays that salary back if they end up making the hire. Um, so basically, we're incentivized to get you a, a, a job as a software engineer or data scientist much more than any other school would. Right. Whereas a school is typically focused on tuition or fees, you've kind of flipped it and you're focused on the outcomes of the student. Yep. Um, you mentioned fellows. And I, I think something that's fascinating about Lambda, especially within the education space, um, which doesn't really prioritize experimentation, is that you guys experiment a lot. How has that um, kind of played out and what are some of the key experiments you guys are focused on right now? Yeah, I think in, in some instances, we've experimented too much. Um, but the, the, the high level is there are a whole lot of things that work and everybody knows that they work. And then there are a whole bunch of things within tech, especially within on the, on the hiring side, um, that nobody really knows what the final solution will be. And there's not really a way to figure it out without rapid experimentation. Um, so the fellows project was... Um, you know, originally it was just, let's try it with a couple of companies, but it, it works so well and uh, kind of spread from there. So it's, I imagine, you know, we're going to have hundreds of students hired from it in the near future and it didn't exist a couple of months ago. So it's uh, kind of that culture of innovation is something that we try to build into the school from, from its very fundamentals. Long-term, and this is in the same vein as experimentation, how do you see Lambda and other boot camps reshaping 
the university model? And do you see boot camps and universities kind of converging on this middle ground in terms of yeah, uh, function and structure? Yeah, I think for the foreseeable future, they'll just continue to coexist where, uh, I, but I think uh, boot camps or vocational training will start to win over more and more students. Uh, if you ask the average student right now why they're going to college, about 80% of them will say the number one reason is to get a job. So there's still other you know, reasons to go to college. You might be interested in networking or the parties or sports or uh, more liberal artsy education. Um, but I think we'll turn to a world where if that's what you want, you go to college. And if what you're really looking for is just to get a job, um, then you go to Lambda school or you, you know, you choose some other bundle of a few things that includes uh, the education required to get a job. So I think we'll, we'll kind of just see an unbundling of the university, um, but the top you know, 20 or 30, maybe 50 universities, the Harvard, Sanford, Princeton, Yale, Ivy Leagues of the world and, and close followers, I don't think they'll change that much because they're not really forced to. Um, the ones that are going to change a lot are kind of the bottom thousand, honestly. Uh, so we'll see. What are some of the, the key issues or uh, limitations that you think um, is preventing Lambda from, from scaling or that long-term you need to figure out in order for you to say this is a viable model? Yeah, so I think the, the high level is we don't have the software infrastructure that we need yet in order to get to really big scale. Um, we we have we have too many things that we have to do too manually, um, which makes it too expensive to to scale rapidly. Um, over time, we're going to be basically piecing apart what happens in the education level and automating what we can. We have a ton of just operations people at every layer of operations you could possibly imagine, and that keeps the price high. And the price high makes it really difficult the price being high um, and not relative to other boot camps necessarily, but relative to what it could be um, makes it more difficult to scale. So I'd hope that in the future, uh, the price goes down, quality comes up, hiring goes up, and then you can expand to, to more places, more fields, uh, more everything basically. On the note of pricing, um, you, you guys are, and you mentioned this earlier, one of the pioneers, at least at scale of ISAs or income share agreements. Um, but what are some of the things there that you still need to figure out in order to say that ISAs long-term are also viable? Yeah, I think, I think we're at the point where if everything works well, so if your program is working, if hiring is working, if, if everything's on point, then ISAs are viable. Um, but everything has to be working really, really well together. So if I were to look at kind of Tesla as an, an analogy that I use often because they have big, you know, manufacturing costs, they're building something new. And obviously the thing that they're building is better than the old thing, but just getting it there and getting it to scale is really difficult. Um, so for us, that's, you know, being able to get people hired in multiple industries um, having a very high level of experience uh, with a low level of costs, which we don't yet have. Um, and nobody really has done all of that at scale. Um, once that happens at scale and it's really working, then I think 
It's just students will pick it. Um, the price of the ISA will go down. The level of payments will go down. Um, and it, it's going to be kind of a, it either works or it doesn't kind of a thing. It's going to be a binary outcome where everything moves to ISAs or ISAs die off and uh, cease to you know, be a real option for students, which would, which would be a tragedy. I mean, most ISAs aren't profitable yet is the, the high level. Um, and it's really difficult to make them be profitable. You have to have everything working in sync from the school to the outcomes, to the servicing. Um, it's not quite there yet. I think it will be in the, in the near future, at least at, at Lambda school. Um, and then, then it's time to scale. Not quite yet, but we're getting close. Are there other tuition models that interest you or do you think it is binary, like you said, where it's the ISA or the current model, maybe they evolve slightly, but those stay true to their nature? Uh, there, there are other models that are interesting, um, both there, there's employer pay and different ways to make employers paying for tuition happen. Um, we do some of that where we have what we call employer-sponsored ISAs, where the employer can basically knock out the ISA for the student or can knock out a portion of the ISA for a student. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, and ISAs, I don't know if they will look exactly like they do today in the future. Um, the, the high level is it's a, a de-risked mechanism where a student only has to pay if they're successful. Um, important thing is kind of the incentive alignment between the school and the student. There are a lot of different ways to do that. Um, and some of them are built out of debt while others are built out of equity. So I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I think that principle will continue to remain true. You mentioned employee sponsored uh, tuition repayment. In that same vein, uh, why haven't we seen well, we've seen Shopify, for example, with their dev degree program. Why haven't we seen other big tech companies rolling out in-house boot camps to, to bring in talent that way? Yeah, the short answer is building a boot camp is really hard. Um, and admissions is hard and the teaching is hard. Um, so you don't really, I don't think we'll see a big corporate player. Maybe Amazon would be able to pull something like that off, but the investment to make it work really well and be so far outside of what you're doing, it's just really high. So for most companies, it just makes sense to you know, keep doing what you're doing and let somebody else run the school. Um, I'd imagine that will stay true at most companies for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, so it's, it's funny because employers are happy to pay. Um, they'll, you know, they can cover tuition, they can cover costs of training. Once they know that that's what the demand is, um, but they, it's difficult when they don't know whether they want to hire a student or not. They can't, it's the, the models that work now are more kind of upskilling. So take, take a customer service rep at a company and make them a software engineer. It doesn't work as well to not be at the company. They don't, you know, they have a really hard time taking someone who they don't know who they are and getting them trained. And that's where the vast, vast majority of hiring comes. So in effect, our employer sponsored ISA serves that mechanism just without 
the employer having to know who the student is up front. So we can handle the training, we can get them placed at the company, and then they can pay for it the same way they would have if it were internal. Um, I think that's what has to happen. And, and I think, you know, if Shopify were to give their program to hundreds of other companies, that would work. But I mean, what Shopify is doing is incredible and a massive effort. And I wouldn't expect most companies to do something similar. What do you make of companies like Google with their, their uh, relatively recently announced uh, certificate program? So they have certificates for like IT support specialists. I imagine they'll roll out ones for, for software engineering. Uh, Amazon has the AWS certification. Is this more of a marketing angle or is this kind of a, a wedge into this space? Yeah, no, I think it's real. Um, I think the, the problem that they have is, you know, it's great if Google recognizes a certificate, but what's the likelihood that someone who's studying gets hired at Google? Um, if it's, you know, 10% or less, then I think you're going to have a difficult time convincing a whole lot of people to study with that specific certificate. There hasn't been a credential that's been applied across a whole lot of different companies. Um, the only thing that's really worked is just creating a skill set um, that tends to map to what a lot of different companies are doing. Uh, I know Google's working on this. I know Amazon's working on this, but they don't, they don't agree, which is why it's, it's difficult to say, just do this instead of getting a CS degree. Uh, you have to get enough buy-in to, re to really get to critical mass and we're just not there yet. Are there other roles or functions or spaces where you think there's opportunity to apply this, this bootcamp model and apply it successfully? We're seeing it with tech sales. We're seeing it with, with product management. Do you see this, this rolling out even further or we need to wait and see how it's working in these spaces? Yeah, for sure. I think it will... I think it will roll through all of tech and basically every, um, every role within tech will have a school or multiple schools associated with them. Um, I hope that Lambda School is most of it in the future. Uh, but then I think we'll see it roll out into other vocational fields, whether it's, you know, welding or truck driving or whether it's nursing and, you know, being a CNA and a nursing assistant. Um, I think that the, the bus basically just started rolling and it's not going to stop anytime soon. Um, there's some, you know, the, basically the more regulated an industry is the longer it will take in some instances, unless it's easy enough to start a school within that regulatory framework that meets all the same standards. So I think we'll see it in tech. Um, I think we'll see it in healthcare after tech and then other stuff will follow that. If someone is right now starting a boot camp, what are the the top one to three things they need to be thinking about, or the the first layer of problems that they need to solve? Uh, getting admissions right is re really important. Um, getting the curriculum and student experience right is really important, um, and then getting the placement mechanism, I say, would be the third thing. Um, what I mean, all that like it's like those are the three things that have to happen in a school. So it's easy to say you have to get them right. Um, but you can't, that's the difficult thing about starting a school is if you get one of those wrong, it all falls apart. If you are selecting the wrong students, it all falls apart. If you are selecting the right students, but not training them well, it all falls apart. 
if you're selecting the right students, training them well, and they don't have enough career support, it all falls apart. Um, so you have to, and that's one of the difficult things about a school and even more specifically running an ISA based school right now um, is with you know, an ISA based school, you have to do even more. You have to figure out uh, financing and data collection and underwriting and all, all sorts of fun stuff that schools are just not used to handling. Uh, so it's pretty new in that regard. Zooming out, I wanted to ask you a couple of kind of macro socioeconomic questions. Uh, the first of which is, what are your thoughts on free public universities and loan forgiveness programs? And I know that's a, a lot to jump into, so we can tackle it at whatever level you want to. Yeah, there's certainly a lot there. I think the, the problem that universities are having right now is being a little bit masked by the debt. Um, because certainly the debt is a problem, but the bigger problem is actually the ineffectiveness of universities. So the, the reason that there's 1.7 trillion in outstanding student loan debt is because so many people spend so much on their you know, higher education needs and then don't have anything to show for it. They can't get a job, they're unemployed. And that's where most of the student loan default comes from. Um, there's also, you know, of course, tuition is still too expensive and um, I would imagine that college being free would start to force some of the prices down. Um, but what, what we lack for isn't just, you know, the forgiveness. It's not just the, the financing mechanism. It's actually the effectiveness of the schools and the effectiveness of the average school that the average student is going to is just too low. Um, and they're not successful enough. So we can say the government will pay for it. But I mean, the government pays for our public schools now, and those still don't produce great outcomes in a lot of instances. So the, the easy part is the funding, but the difficult part is the outcomes. In a couple of your interviews, you've said that you think unemployment is an optimization problem that'll be solved in 20 years. Can you speak about that more length? Yeah, at, at a high level, there is more need in the economy then there is ability to fill that need. The problem is, so in other words, you know, there are more people who want more stuff than there is people who are able to provide those goods and services. Um, the problem is they're not matched with each other. So, you know, as an example, um, trucking right now, there's a desperate shortage of truckers um, and in some, other fields, there is a massive, massive um, overemployment problem. Um, so we, we don't have anything that really matches the two or that takes, you know, one overfunded, overstaffed industry and puts you into another outside of the traditional university system. So if you look at, you know, if you look at the number of people who are unemployed, it's far lower than the total number of jobs that are out there. Um, so in theory, if we just, you know, helped unemployed people find the right jobs, get the right skills, move to the right career set, which I think we will be able to do in the future, um, unemployment in the, in the long run permanent sense shouldn't have to exist. I'm sure there's still going to be, you know, micro level difficulties and folks who have hard time finding jobs and careers that don't pan out, but, but at the highest of the highest levels, um, I think unemployment is actually 
a solvable, scalable problem from from a macro perspective. Does that at all discount the human element in that people may not want to work in certain fields or or there's less desirability for certain fields? Yeah, I don't have really good data on that because it's difficult to say where people will want to work. Um, but generally, when we think of unemployment, we don't think of, you know, where where you prefer to be. We think of, can you get a job? And um, so I guess you could say, um, when I'm thinking of unemployment, I'm thinking of unemployment that's voluntary in some way, or, um, you know, the, the assumption is that people will look for work um, and will accept that work when it's there, which may not be true. Um, but, you know, in my mind, if that's true, then it's not necessarily on unemployment, it's kind of on the person. Um, and it's a, it's a different class of problem than you know, millions of people unable to find work. Absolutely. Um, are there any other education or, or employment trends that you're excited about outside of boot camps? Yeah, I'm really excited about homeschooling and micro-schooling. I think the same way, you know, COVID accelerated e-commerce by about 10 years, it also seems to me to be accelerating the trends of homeschooling and micro-schooling. Um, we'll see how much that sticks, um, <clears throat> but I'm excited for more folks to be able to experience and experiment with alternative types of K through 12 education, because I don't think we're anywhere near what the optimal experience or learning or outcomes are. Um, even in the best, you know, private, charter, public, doesn't really matter in the best schools, we're still, I think, falling behind what we could be doing. Um, and the only way to get there is a lot of experimentation and a lot of innovation, which I see happening now. And that's really, really exciting to me. Yeah, I just had on in the last episode, Kelly Smith, the CEO of Prenda. Um, yeah, they definitely so come to mind when I think of that. Yeah, yeah that's a space I'm, I'm passionate about. And I think a lot of the, the stigmas about homeschooling and micro-schooling have worn off in the last year or um, have been kind of- We're starting to at a minimum. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, on that note, are, are you currently homeschooling your kids or do you have plans to in the near future? Yeah, so I actually have a daughter who is right now in, in public uh, school, public kindergarten. Um, and we're, we're figuring that out in real time. Um, so I'd, I would be surprised if by this time next year, she's not in some way homeschooled. Um, I, don't, I don't love the private schools that are near me. I think a lot of them are pressure cookers trying to incentivize the wrong things in many instances. Um, but I think you know, my, my wife was an elementary school teacher and I'm invested in, in enough homeschooling companies. I think there's going to be a solution that's right for our family. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is yet, but I'd be, I'd be surprised if it remains public school for, you know, all of my kids growing up. Are there any other, I guess, contrarian or unorthodox approaches you're taking to your own kids education? Um, I think, I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that I, I tweeted in a series of tweets the other day 
um, is I don't see I don't see a reason that the average high schooler couldn't graduate with a recurring income that would make it so they don't have to work um, or you know that it, they have to enter the job field in a traditional manner. Um, I think a lot of students, perhaps not all, but uh, with the right educational background could finish school much, much faster. Um, so I, you know, I talk to kids all the time now that I'm in the education space who are at high school graduate level at 13 or 14. Um, and so whether you decide to start, you know, college classes or vocational training or doing your own thing at that point, I think um, the current United States high school curriculum and schedule is so relaxed that the average student with the proper training could soar through it in a much faster way. Um, whether you want to do that or not is, you know, a different question. I, but I think, you know, honestly, I freaking hated high school. Um, and I was in the most advanced classes you could possibly be in in every instance. It was still boring. Um, I would have loved to have done something else. I didn't realize that was an option at the time where I would have would have done it. Um, so for my kids, I don't know what their preference will be, but I, I want them to be able to live their lives in the way that they see fit, even as a, as a teenager. I think they'll be able to handle and comprehend that kind of a decision um, at that age. But we'll see. My oldest kid is five, so I may have no idea what I'm talking about yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems that K through 12 in particular is a, a one size fits all model with a standard schedule. Um, there's no really accelerating that unless you're, you're incredibly special and advanced um, and you're always moving at the pace of the slowest person in the classroom. And I think that's a, a byproduct of school being more about babysitting and prepping you for the workplace environment than it being about education and growth. Um, I've actually I've talked to John Danner a bit about an idea I've had, which is um, taking elite high school graduates, putting them through a boot camp and prepping them for apprenticeships or internships in non-technical roles within tech. So things like sales, customer support, product, obviously would have to hone in on one of those to begin with. But I, I think it's sad, frankly, that a lot of... Um, high functioning high school graduates just feel pressure to go directly into to university because that's what they're told growing up. That's what everybody around them is doing when they could jump into, um, and, and they theoretically could do this with Lambda right now, but I think this opens it up to people interested in non-technical fields as well. They could go through a six month program and we could connect them with tech companies and get them that exposure and that in that would normally come from a diploma, um, but accelerate that timeline do it for, for lower cost um, and kind of accelerate their career in the process. So yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that, that's something I wanna explore more. So you're very active on Twitter as I am. And in my own experience, I've seen Twitter hacked as a um, kind of an, an informal tool for education, networking, career services. Have you seen that in your own experience and are there any anecdotes along those lines? Oh yeah, I mean, as the, the wildest example that I can think of, um, a couple of days ago, I was, I was tweeting about some of my 
really small angel investments. Um, so I, you know, I've never had an exit or made any real money. So a lot of my angel investments are more out of love than opportunity. And, you know, I, I invest $2,000 here, $5,000 there, because that's all I can afford. Um, so I was tweeting about that. And then uh, Sayhill, the uh, co-founder of Gumroad, um, was like, hey, you should, you should raise a rolling fund. Uh, he, he texted me and I was like, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, I don't really have time to do that. I don't want to do it right now. And before I knew it, he had put together a Google Doc and said, all right, this is for Austin's rolling fund. Um, you know, if you want to invest in Austin's companies, this is how you do it. Fill out this form. Tell me how much you want to invest. Um, and like, I didn't even, I didn't do anything. Um, I, I had a, you know, and have a pretty big audience on Twitter that knows me pretty well. But honestly, 24 hours later, we had about $40 million in interest for a VC fund that I didn't even decide to raise. Um, and, you know, I'm going to turn almost all of it down because <laughs> I still don't particularly want to raise a, uh, want to be a, an investor or a VC. Um, but I think that anecdote goes to show you, you know, I know people who spent years trying to raise a $10 million fund and because of the network I'd built up, uh, Sahil and I, I guess mostly Sahil, uh, and the network that he's built, we're able to raise a, you know, 10 million, 20 million, it ended up close to $40 million fund in two tweets. Um, so the, the power of Twitter, I think is just incredible. And I think the power of networks generally are something that the average person underestimates by a lot. Yeah, I think historically, it's businesses have taken the approach of building a product and then attracting the audience, but it seems like that has been flipped on its head in this community-driven age of the internet where you build an audience that's loyal, they trust you, and you have the ability to, to build products and services for them. You can launch a fund, you can do a sub stack, you can launch a, pod, a podcast, and, and you instantly have an audience for that. So that, that's fascinating to hear. Um, that's, that's really all I've got. I think we, we burned awesome. through these questions faster than I expected. Um, but thank you again so much for taking the time to, to talk. And I actually would encourage you to do that rolling fund because I'm somebody <laughs> who I want to invest small amounts into companies like Lambda. I don't have the ability to write 25K checks to all of them. Um, but I would, and I don't know how I missed this by the way, but I would absolutely invest in that, that fund if you do decide to roll it out. Awesome. Well, I'll, so maybe, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Thanks for taking the time. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to review and share and stay tuned for more episodes.